0: Facts, candid conversations, and some levity to lighten your day. This is the Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio. Fantastic Friday to you. We made it through another week. We're gonna kick off the weekend in styles. We always do on the Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio. 914 Nine One Four-9149 is a toll-free line to call to talk to me for free. We've had some great conversations this week. I know we're gonna have some more today. 888-914-9149. If you want to email the show, if you have questions, comments, maybe some show ideas, some articles you'd like me to comment on, we'll take a look at them. kale at relevantradio.com is the address. C-A-L-E at relevantradio.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at Kale Clark. C-A-L-E Clark with an E. So we're going to talk about this question did jesus need a mulligan did jesus need a mulligan by that i mean did he need a redo on a healing miracle that didn't quite work out the first time and i I use the word mulligan because of course i've got I, i must admit i've got golf fever right now we're in the doldrums of winter we're in february but hey the masters is coming up soon early april and the genesis open Patrick Alog, who's uh producing, guest producing today as uh producer Jim Shaper is uh is uh out today. Uh, Patrick, it's good to talk to you. We've been we've been kinda keeping tabs on Tiger Woods because he's playing as host of the Genesis Open out in LA. How's he doing? Is he gonna make the cut? Hey Cale, and technically I don't wanna uh be a corrector, but it's the Genesis Invitational. The Genesis Invitational. All right. Well it's not it's not quite an open tournament, as it were. So you need an invite for this one. I can't just show up and yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe, maybe. how's he doing? He, had, he, he birdied his last three holes last night. I watched it uh, after work last night on, on tape delay. It was pretty exciting. He was playing with Rory and JT, Justin Thomas. But is he going to make the cut, Patrick? Well, currently he is plus one, tied for 64th, and the projected cut is plus one. Oh, he's just hanging on the cut line. He might need a mulligan or two. Well, of course, uh, if you're a non-golfer, <laughs> well, we'll get away from the sports chatter for a second. If you're if you're a non-golfer, you might not know this, but a mulligan is simply a do-over. And, and they don't do mulligans, by the way, in the pros. In real tournaments, no one actually gets a mulligan. You have, your score is your score, however high it may be. But, yeah, when you're playing with your buddies you might give them a mulligan you might give them one or two mulligans maybe one on the back nine one on the front nine i don't know you get a do-over you get a second chance well i wanted to talk about this yesterday but we we kind of ran out of time we we had we had so many calls it was just such a great conversation that we were having i did want to talk about this whether or not jesus needed a mulligan a do-over because a lot of people think he didn't quite get a miracle right what was really going on here Well, in Mark chapter 8, this was uh, on Wednesday, the gospel reading for this uh, past Wednesday's Mass. I love the gospel of Mark. I did a series on it, uh, For the Faith Explained. This is what happened. Jesus cures a blind man. And this is in Mark chapter 8, starting with verse 22. It says, And they came to Bethsaida. And some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands upon him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. Then again, he laid his hands upon his eyes and he looked intently and was restored and saw everything clearly. And he sent him away to his home saying, Do not even enter the village. So it's was, it was an interesting kind of two-stage healing. And my daughter, Michaela, came home from school talking about this last night. They were discussing this at school, she and her friends. And this is what Michaela had to say about this. <laughs> Check it out.
1: Did you know Jesus failed on one of his miracles?
0: Did he really fail, though?
1: Yeah. I don't know about
0: that, but tell me what, what you're talking about.
1: So, well, there's a blind man and his friends. They're bringing... <laughs> Him um, to Jesus, mm-hmm. and then so Jesus, so Jesus left all the people. And he, and he covered the man's eyes and said, "Can you see?" And he said, "No, I can only see people walking around like trees." <laughs> and then the second time, and Jesus covered his eyes, he he can he said, "Can you see now?" And he said. Yes. Yes, Lord. I can see.
0: So what, what does this really mean,
1: though? So, well, Jesus couldn't do it the first time because of his lack of faith. Hmm.
0: Interesting explanation, Michaela. Thank you so much for that. All right. Well, So, hey, Michaela's got a take on this. She might be writing a commentary on Mark, for all I know. But is it because of this guy's lack of faith? Hmm, we'll, we'll look at that, that interpretation, but but one of the things that was really interesting about this to me is that this might seem odd to a lot of people. A lot of people might look at this healing miracle and, and say that this actually lowers the view of Jesus out there, that he couldn't get the miracle right the first time. For me, it, it inspires the opposite reaction. It inspires more confidence in me, in what the Gospels have to say about Jesus, in the veracity of this account, uh, the care with which this was passed down to us, warts and all, warts and all, because the Gospel writers do tell it like it is. This is historic, this is authentic, I have to salute them for their candor, because they pass on the story, bumps and all. They don't. They don't sanitize it. They don't change the miracles. So that it's. It's. It works hundred percent well the first time. I think the fact that it that it is presented this way to me, that makes it sound a lot more historically plausible. So what does Jesus do with this guy? He takes him out of the village. Why does he do that? Well, he wants to avoid publicity. Why would he want to avoid publicity? Wouldn't he want people to know that he can do? Uh, Such a stupendous miracle. Well, this has to do with, and this has been overdone, Uh, scholars who look at the Gospel of Mark, they say there's something called the Messianic secret in Mark, that Jesus doesn't want people to know he's the Messiah. He wants to keep it quiet. That's not quite true. He, he, He is the Messiah. He knows it. He wants other people to know it. But what he doesn't want people to do is get off track from the main message. And he's there to, of course, institute the kingdom of God. And and he doesn't want people to get too off track with the healings. Exorcisms are important. In fact, I'd say the exorcisms are more important than the healings in Mark because they're proof positive that the kingdom of heaven is here. The kingdom of God is here, manifested through Jesus, and the kingdom of Satan has come to an end. We, We talked about this a few days ago on the show So the exorcisms especially are proof positive about that, and people are always curious about exorcisms. I'm told that, and I haven't listened to this, but apparently the top podcast in the world right now is one about exorcisms. There's just an insatiable appetite that people have to hear about that, but also the physical healings. About 25%, about a quarter of the population in Jesus' day was really, really sick at any given time, and he's a one-man walking healthcare clinic. You think about Uh, The woman with the issue of blood who just touches the fringe of his garment. She is healed. That kind of power was going out from Jesus. And we have a stupendous miracle here with the healing of a blind man. Now, you might say, well, it's not that impressive. It was a two-stage healing. Well, this was still far, far more stupendous than anything that was going on out there in the world. There were other exorcists in Jesus' day and maybe some other healers as well. But nobody did things like this. Nobody uh, performed exorcisms with the authority that Jesus did. No rigmarole, no incantations, no formulas. He just says, shut up and get out, and they leave. But with the healings as well, in John's gospel, Jesus heals an, another blind man. And this is just, this just blows people away. And they say, nowhere has it ever been seen, th- this has never been heard of on the face of the earth, that a man born blind was healed. Now, we don't know if this guy was born blind or not, but... Uh, this is another blind guy. And Jesus takes him outside. He, he he doesn't want people to get too off track with the healings. He wants them to focus on the main message. So he takes him out of the village, and he probably asked him some questions. He's examining him, in a sense, almost like a doctor. And Jesus is, of course, the great physician. He calls himself that. And the ancients, by the way, the ancients thought that, th- this is how they thought that the eye worked. They thought that vision projected out, from the eye, they didn't quite know how it actually worked. they They thought it was more like a movie projector, if you will. And so that's why it says in in verse twenty four that the guy looks intently. He's looking outwards. and that's how how Mark is kind of putting it together. And so this is also sacramental healing as well. he He spit on his eyes and lays his hands upon him. So he's using created matter to bring about the healing, his, his spittle, if you will, from his incarnate body. And he says, do you see anything? He says, "Uh, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then again, he lays his hands upon his eyes and he looks intently and was restored and saw everything clearly. And then he sent him away to his home saying, do not even enter the village. And again, why does he do that? He doesn't want to get mobbed by the people. Um, Physical healings are important. They're good. They're proof of, of what Jesus can do, that he wants to restore body and soul. But again, this is why he has to get into a boat sometimes and push out from the from the crowds on the shore so he can teach them so they can actually get the message because that's what he's there to do anybody who's healed they're going to die even lazarus who he resuscitated was going to die again it wasn't a resurrection he wasn't going to live forever it wasn't like Jesus' resurrection so spiritual healing is paramount and so that's what's really going on here now in terms of what michaela was saying did the guy lack faith the first time that's an, intriguing, that's an intriguing interpretation, and there are some scholars and some saints throughout history who have kind of said this. Here, here's a couple of interesting takes from, from history. This is kind of a, I guess you could say, an allegorical or spiritual interpretation of what happened. That Saint Bede, the Venerable Bede, if you will, he, he said this, he said, Jesus heals the blind man in order to announce the mystery of redemption, because as God incarnate, Jesus can heal a person through the sacrament of his human nature. Here, signified by his hands and spittle, this grace cures our spiritual blindness gradually. And as with the blind man, progress is measured in proportion to our faith. So maybe Michaela was onto something there. St. Jerome, the great St. Jerome, the great biblical scholar, he said, The restoration of the blind man signifies our gradual increase in wisdom from the darkness of ignorance to the light of truth. Christ's spittle is the perfect doctrine that proceeds from his mouth. It enhances our vision and brings us progressively to the knowledge of God. I like that. I like that. So as we get deeper into the word of Christ, as we study it more, we learn it more, we see reality more clearly because Christ is bringing us reality about ourselves, about God, about the world, about relationships. And we can see more clearly the way that we ought to walk in this world. And, and this, maybe Mark is kind of picking up on this theme, too, of, of spiritual insight. Because right before this, Jesus was talking about the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. Uh, he asks them about the loaves. And he, he sort of sharpens their understanding on this. And then right after this, we, they go to Caesarea Philippi, and that's where Peter makes this big profession of faith. Jesus asks them, who do men say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. He gets the correct answer here. So they're beginning to see more clearly who he is. And we all have to do that, of course, uh, in our spiritual lives. You're listening to The Cale Clark Show on Relevant Radio, 888 914 Four, nine. All right. Here, here's another thing. Uh, speaking of scripture, that I wanted to talk about, and later in the show, by the way, I'm going to be talking about how I, I just want to kind of tease this a little bit. A lot of people are very nervous in the United States about the future. They're 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 seeing all these spy balloons and UFOs, and and they're not from outer space, folks. I, they are, in all probability, spy craft from perhaps China or Russia. In all likelihood, that's what we're dealing with here. But there's a, there's a lot of nervousness among the people of the United States. And I, I want to give you some cause for optimism. And I'll, and I'll do that later in the show. I don't know if you're feeling optimistic about the State of the Union or the prospects of the U.S. Uh, going forward, but you should be. You shouldn't be uh, in a state of despair by any stretch of the imagination. But we'll, we'll talk about that later. Speaking about nation building, though, in today's readings, in our Old Testament reading at Mass today, we have, of course, the Tower of Babel, and and this is this is a really has always been a really intriguing passage to me. And I want to ask you a question: Can you pass me a ziggurat? A ziggurat. now not a cigarette. I don't smoke. I don't smoke. I'm talking about a ziggurat. because that's what the Tower of Babel really, really is. Now. Let me just uh, break this down a little bit. I'll tell you what a a ziggurat is. But this comes from uh, Genesis chapter 11. And this is the Tower of Babel account that was the first reading today. It says, Now the whole earth had one language and few words. And as men migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone And bitumen for mortar. And then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do. Will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. Now, when, when God said, Let us go down, that, that could be a little well, tip off to the Trinity of Persons in the Godhead. Let us go down and there confuse their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth. And they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. So, what was this thing, this Tower of Babel? First of all, where was it? And then I'll answer the question, what was it? Well, the people who were building this thing, they settled in a place called Shinar. Shinar is another name for Babylon. Babylon. So that, that's, that's an important clue, because really what this was, was an ancient ziggurat. I don't know if you've read about ziggurats in school, if you've ever seen I've actually seen one in Egypt. Uh, the first time I, I went I went to the Holy Land, I went to Egypt first, so I kind of did the Exodus experience, as, as it were. I went from Egypt into Israel, into the Holy Land, and uh, tomorrow, not tomorrow, actually, on Monday, tomorrow's Saturday, but on Monday... I'm going to be talking about on the Faith Explained program the fact that mountains were essentially considered to be homes of the gods in the ancient world. And that's no less true for the one true and living God, Yahweh, because Moses goes up Mount Sinai and he meets with God. And God not only gives him the Ten Commandments, the tablets, but he also reveals to him... His where he lives essentially the 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 heavenly throne room of God and he says I want you to make a copy of this I'm gonna give you the blueprints you make a copy of it It's gonna be called the tabernacle and I will dwell with you there In a way that you won't get zapped with my holiness. That's a real possibility. It's a dangerous thing But I'm gonna I'm gonna show you how to build this you're gonna build this and my presence will be with you wherever you go so in, in a lot of uh, ancient cultures, they had these false gods, these pagan gods, and they, they all lived on mountains. And so, what they would sometimes do is build these pyramids with a, a staircase on the outside. And they were called ziggurats. Z, am betraying my Canadian-ness, or as they say in the United States, Z. Z-I-G-G-U-R-A-T, that's a ziggurat. So it's, it's a big pyramid, and it essentially was a, a giant temple, and it's meant to resemble a mountain, because the God's lived on mountains. So there was one that existed in Babylon, by the way, that goes all the way, modern-day Iraq, it goes all the way back to 2100 BC. That's the time of Abraham, Father Abraham, and he would have maybe seen this thing when God called him to leave that place in the, in the ancient land of Ur, so he said er i think i better get going here but anyways this is a the ziggurat was was this connection point so it was thought between heaven and earth so it, again it had a, it had a staircase on the outside and the word ziggurat comes from an acadian word akkadian not 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 like the french canadian acadians in nova scotia They're kind of related to the to the creole people around louisiana sidebar but It comes from a different kind. The ancient Akkadian word, zakaru, which means to build high. So really common in the ancient world in Mesopotamia. And at the very, very top, there'd be this stairway to heaven, if you will, on the outside of the building. And Patrick, if you want to strike up the tune, that would be lovely. Um, Kind of brings back memories of high school dances, Robert Plant, Jimmy Page, a really long song, so if you wanted to ask a girl to dance, this is a really good one. Yeah. So, Stairway to Heaven, that's, that's really what ziggurats really were. So you descend to the top of the ziggurat, and then the god, quote unquote, that you worshipped would come down from the heavens and meet you at the top. So that's what happened. And then at the bottom of the stairway to heaven, on the outside of the ziggurat structure, There'd be a temple and that's where people would worship their God. So that's exactly what was going on here with the Tower of Babel. And that's exactly what they're trying to build. And so this was what they were really trying to do. This is the ultimate expression of pride. They're trying to harness, they're trying to take control of God. They were trying to get power from God to make a name for themselves. This is really interesting, because in the the book of Genesis, if Eve's sin in the garden, and Adam too, of course, was wanting to be like God, that was the big temptation, eat the fruit, you'll be like God. Those who were building the Tower of Babel kind of wanted something else. They wanted God to be like them. They wanted to bring God down to their level. Why? So that they can manipulate him. It can't be done. It absolutely can't be done and we'll tell you why you're listening to the kale clark show on relevant radio got to take a quick break right now call in 888-914-9149 we'll be right back 888-914-9149 Ever dreamt of seeing the sights in Italy? St. Peter's Basilica, the Sistine Chapel. Drew Mariani in the Colosseum fighting to the death. More info on our September Eucharistic Revival pilgrimage at relevantradio.com Italy. Seats are limited. Yeah. The Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio. Yeah, we can't resist playing that song again. Stairway to Heaven. That's really what was going on with the Tower of Babel. That was the Old Testament reading at Mass today. It was probably a ziggurat, an ancient pyramid-like temple with a stairway on the outside. And the worshiper could climb the stairway and meet with God at the top of that structure. So they're trying to build this stairway to heaven. It's not going to work, obviously. And by the way, that also factors in later with Jacob's ladder. Again, probably the same thing. It probably wasn't a ladder. It was probably a stairway to heaven, again, that he saw in his vision. So just so you know, it's good to have some uh, good context there. It's just intriguing to see, too, how... (laughs) As Mark Twain says, I don't know if history repeats itself, but it sure does rhyme. And that's always the case in salvation history. Not only is God always the same, as it says in Hebrews, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But things tend to happen in cycles, familiar cycles. What happened at the beginning of the book of Genesis? There are these waters of chaos in Genesis chapter 1. then God creates the cosmos. He creates a garden for Adam and Eve in Genesis 2. Adam and Eve fall into sin. Their nakedness is, is exposed in Genesis 3. Then Cain and Abel. And then what happens is the offsprings of Cain and Abel, the evil line of Cain, the righteous descendants of of uh, the son that replaces Abel, of course. And then the culmination really comes in the in the corruption of the Nephilim. And, and that's in Genesis chapter 6. These are really, really bad guys. And this is right before the... Uh, Tower of Babel incident. So then we have, of course, later on, there's, there's, there's Noah's flood. Noah's flood represents absolute judgment on the corrupt ancient world. And it, and it kind of takes everything back to the original waters of chaos, the waters of creation. That's in Genesis 6 and 7. And God creates the dry land, if you will. Uh, the waters recede. The dry land is there, just like at the beginning in Genesis 8. And then Noah kind of becomes Adam 2.0. He starts over again with Noah and his family, gives him a new covenant with all creation. But then there's obviously trouble with Noah as well. He falls into sin. Uh, Ham sins. Noah's nakedness is exposed, just like the nakedness of Adam and Eve. They realize they were naked. Genesis chapter 9. And then there's the genealogies, right? I dream of genealogies. No, you don't. Ham. The genealogy of Ham, who's kind of a bad dude. Shem. And... The offspring there and Shem is Shem's kind of the good guy. So Shem, by the way, his name means name. Shem means name. So the descendants of Ham try to also make a name for themselves, a Shem for themselves with this Tower of Babel. They're trying to build their own city. I built this city on rock and roll. No, they built it on just pure pride. And uh, Jefferson Starship there. Oh, that's that's a crazy reference that I just came up with. But anyways. And then there's corruption. And so this this is a cycle that happens again and again and again and again. So what we need to do as children of God is not to do what these guys did, not to try to glorify their own name, make a name for themselves. We need to glorify the name of Jesus Christ. Paul says in the New Testament, We do not preach ourselves. We do not try to make a name for ourselves. We do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. That is just a a fantastic passage from St. Paul. And by the way, just one last thing before we move on. You you probably heard this before, hopefully, you have, in homilies at Pentecost. Pentecost is really the reversal of the Tower of Babel incident because. There's clearly a connection here between uh, the apostles, the disciples of the Lord, speaking in tongues, which were actual languages, different languages of the world, people in Jerusalem for the feast, speaking in tongues on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. There's a definite connection with the Tower of Babel incident in Genesis 11 because God scatters the people at Babel by dividing their languages. They had one language, they all understood each other, he divides them up through language. But at Pentecost, people from every nation under heaven, they hear the apostles in their own language, and it, it's almost as if they're, they're speaking one language again, the language of the gospel. And so God's judgment originally divided the people. Christ's resurrection and the forgiveness that he offers, so that we can escape the judgment, that unites people from every nation into one body, one universal body, the Catholic Church. How about that? How about that? Love that. Love that. That's just great, great stuff. Well, you know, we're all about faith, facts, and fun on The Kale Clark Show. And there was a, a fun story that I wanted to share with you yesterday. We kind of ran out of time, but uh, thankfully, we've got some time right now. And I wanted to—it's kind of a, a humorous piece. It's a total um, uh, little humorous essay here. And it's all about uh, Airbnb reviews of— wombs from newborn babies. And by the way, in real life, Airbnb has kind of taken a beating in, re- in recent times. A lot of people are, are going from Airbnbs are saying, I- I'm never going to stay in an Airbnb again. If I can help it, I'm going to go to a hotel every single time. Why do they say that? Well, if you stay in an Airbnb in someone else's home, very often there are all these cleaning fees that are added on, hundreds of dollars, and you have to do the laundry, you have to make the beds. It's Wow, it's it's like you're on staff there. Now, I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to stay at a hotel. Better service. They, they take care of you. Unless, unless you're with a large group. That's when a, a, an Airbnb actually probably makes a lot more sense. But anyways, you, you might have heard some of the discussion uh, in the, uh, on the net about that. But uh, Sally Miller at McSweeney's wrote a, a humorous little piece called Airbnb Reviews of Mothers' Wombs. And <laughs> they're pretty funny. Uh, let me read some of them to you. Uh, One of them is called Superb Stay. Around halfway into my stay, I decided the only thing I wanted off the room service menu was bacon. If anything else was offered, I sent it straight back. My host obliged and only ate bacon for the better part of my visit. It would have been a five-star review if it weren't for the three days after a doctor's checkup that my host attempted to eat salads. So, again, these are Airbnb reviews, fictional, of course, uh, from newborns of their gestational accommodations, as it were. Okay, here's another one. Highly recommend. This place is amazing. On demand, all-you-can-eat snacks. Basically, anytime I asked for a snack, I got a snack. As far as I can tell, I am the first one here. Everything looks brand new. The host and I enjoyed yoga and had a lovely photo shoot in a field of flowers. Frequent naps. Did I mention the snacks? All right, here's another review. This one isn't so positive. Overrated. Overrated. There have been three people in here before me. The place was a wreck when I arrived. I was very much looking forward to jolting my host, Linda, awake in the middle of the night by kicking her stomach, but this place is so stretched out that she barely responds. Linda is also too busy taking care of tenants in her quote-unquote outside home, to give me much attention. I have given the host severe heartburn, so she is aware of my dissatisfaction. (laughs) All right, another one, did not meet expectations. I chose to stay in this womb for the duration of my visit based on the stellar recommendation given by its previous occupant, quote-unquote, my sister. Her review stated that there would be ample afternoon naps and ebullient conversations between host and her husband, about how she was now the size of a kumquat. I wasn't once compared to the size of a fruit my entire stay. The only conversation I heard between my host and her husband was this. I don't suppose you'd be interested in carrying out the rest of this pregnancy, Kevin. And right, So did not meet expectations. All right. Oh, uh, one, more, one more negatives. Uh, a couple more negative ones, and then I'll, and then I'll close with some positive reviews. Um, rude host. Rude host, it is not my nature to complain. I'm generally pretty content to stay balled up in a fetal position. I try not to bother anyone other than the months of nausea and severe angry outbursts whenever I smell Kevin's deodorant. But when I overheard my host say that this had been the longest 40 weeks of her life, I no longer felt welcome and was forced into sending her into hours of labor pain. All right, here's one more negative review. Will not stay here again. Ever been the ever been in the <laughs> ever been in the back of an old van with no seat belts and a bunch of secondhand band equipment rolling around in it? Well, welcome to my womb. Previous guests left the place in shambles. The host Lisa did feed me a lot of leftover mac and cheese, which I quite enjoyed. These are Airbnb reviews of wombs. All right, uh, here's 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 a here's a positive one. A little cramped but cozy. Stayed here with my sibling. Started out nicely. However, over the course of our stay, we started to feel a little on top of one another. Maybe it was because it was advertised for one guest only. Shout out to the host for accommodating the last minute edition. All right. So there we go. Uh, These are some Airbnb reviews of Mother's Wombs by Sally Miller writing for McSweeney's.net. Okay. We'll be right back with your phone calls and... Also, some reasons to be confident. If you're an American and you're kind of worried about the future, got some reasons for you to keep your chin up going into the weekend. 888 9149 is the number to call. It's Cale Clark show on Relative Radio. If you're in the market for health insurance, our sponsor, the Catholic Order of Foresters, is here to help you and your family find the most cost-effective health plan. Learn more at RelevantRadio.com Forester. Helping you keep your mind off traffic and on the more important things in life. It's Cale Clark on Relevant Radio. Hey, welcome back to the program. I want to remind you that you can really elevate your Lent this year in just two minutes a day. Father Rocky's Lenten Lessons on the Mass are available for you. They're bite-sized videos, and they're just a couple of minutes long, but they had over a million views last year. They're packed with interesting facts that will help you learn more about the Mass and your faith every day during Lent. So you can sign up at relevantradio.com slash Lent. They're free. Father Rocky's Lenten Lessons on the Mass, relevantradio.com slash Lent. Let's go to the phones right now. Let's go to Adam in Chicago on line three. Hi, Adam hi uh
2: kill i um i was uh kind of relaxing philosophical okay you know, with, uh, <laughs> regarding uh god um mm-hmm. you're talking about the tower of babel uh, uh, mm-hmm. of Abel and, uh the and the the ziggurats and the yeah. man trying to bring down he uh, got to their level so we could manipulate them um i was saying like What, what is God? Like, how did it arise? uh, Did it arise from, like, the fact that some humans consider others, at least in some respects, superior to them? Like, say, even at at different ages, different stages in life. Like, say, a child, uh, their parents, or uh, the parents of their governors and so forth. Are how how, well, how would uh, adam are you, are you kind of god? asking
0: like are you kind of asking how humanity arrived at the conception of god kind of thing
2: exactly and and also when did it first arise mm.
0: well i i don't I, as far as i know there's there's never been a people group on the face of the earth that's ever existed that didn't worship some sort of god or gods and so, and this is something that's that's really elemental to human nature. St. Paul talks about this, for example, in, in Romans chapter 1. And he says, uh, in Romans chapter 1, starting with verse 18, he says, "...the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of men, who by their wickedness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. Ever since the creation of the world... His invisible nature, namely, his eternal power and deity, has been clearly perceived in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their senseless minds were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for Or images resembling mortal man, or birds, or animals, or reptiles. So, and then he goes on to to sort of this catalog of sins that the people fall into because they fail to worship the one true and living God. And so, he basically says that nobody has an excuse because there's something called natural law. There's natural revelation that God gives through creation that people can access just by simply being aware of the universe, the beauty of creation. As the psalm says, the hell, the heavens are telling the glory of God. The firmament proclaims his handiwork day after day. They pour forth speech night after night. They proclaim knowledge. And so that's why he says people are without excuse. They ought to know. They ought to have known better. But you can could, you could maybe figure out and know that there is a God just from natural revelation. But you don't know much about who God is unless he actually goes ahead and reveals it to you. And this is where supernatural revelation comes in. And God starts revealing himself uh, to the world uh, through his people Israel. It starts with Abraham and, and continues on. And that's really a lot of what the book of Genesis talks about. And Genesis has the, the Tower of Babel incident in there. And so obviously the ultimate revelation is in the person of Jesus Christ. So that's, that's how we get more information. And then once we get that information, we're obviously responsible for what we do with it. So does that help to make sense, Adam?
2: um somewhat but now somewhat. like you made me think of different things like in uh in genesis for example the, the creation story you know we got uh there was like darkness and uh you know just the spirit moving on top mm-hmm. of the waters i
0: believe yeah yeah mm-hmm.
2: so i think uh, you know like if you could kind of define life biologically it takes you know water takes uh, different uh, elements of the periodic table it takes uh, oxygen and it takes uh, light like mm-hmm. from the environment all right. and and the light from the uh you know to grow the plants mm-hmm. that some people eat and the, and that animals eat and stuff and like if you could find like different factors yeah. like uh like uh, say like scientifically define life, wouldn't that kind of come into play in terms of defining God, in terms of like also like the powers of the soul, the memory and intellect Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and uh, the passions and all this uh, reproduction, uh, you know, like the seemingly infinite uh, span that humans could live throughout History, like by reproducing. So,
0: so, I'm just to jump here. So, what, what is the if you could, sort of, succinctly put the question that you're trying to ask? I'm trying to figure out where you're going with this. What? Oh, like I mean, you're talking about supernatural, and but that Mm -hmm.
2: seems kind of like a cop out. Like, uh, I mean, couldn't you at least attempt to define God in terms of, um, you know, uh,
0: the natural biology and so forth? well i mean god created the natural world he created everything that exists but he's outside of of creation he existed before creation ever came to be at a certain point obviously and and i think that a really good scientific explanation for this is is the big bang theory which was by the way promulgated created by a catholic priest father george lemaitre he came up with this idea of the Big Bang Theory of, of, the, of cosmology. Where did the universe come from? There was a specific starting point. And uh, so, yeah, I I, I, I'm, I I wish I wish I could understand your question better. I'm not sure I'm understanding what you're, what you're really trying to ask here. But, um, anyways, I, I gave it my best shot. But <laughs> it was Adam, I appreciate you. Uh, thank you for calling in and thank you for listening. That was Adam in Chicago. Let's now go to. Fern in Granton Wisconsin. Hi Fern. Hello there. Hi.
2: Um hi. I I just wanted to ask you um I had an aunt that um if she didn't fast on Friday. Mm-hmm. And I she would eat meat then she said, "Well, well that's okay. I can I can, I'll just fast on Saturday."
0: Oh, okay. Now, was this during <laughs> Lent or was this outside for, of was this yeah. outside of Lent or was this
1: during
0: Lent, okay. Well, my understanding of the situation is that is that is that during Lent, uh, things are a lot more strict on that front uh, in terms of uh, not eating meat on, on Fridays and of course also on, on Ash Wednesday as well. So that, that's I think what the U.S. Uh, bishops have have kind of uh, said about that. Now outside of lent a lot of catholics obviously do make a habit of fasting for meat outside of lent anyways just on any friday but if they don't sometimes they'll have a replacement penance for for that if they do eat meat they'll they'll maybe say some extra prayers or or do some sort of another penance make a sacrifice of some sort but i I think i think you're i don't know if there's i don't know if you could just sort of swap saturday for friday just because you feel like it um i i don't know if that really works but uh that's my take on it. Uh, I could be wrong. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think she should stick to Friday. <laughs> I don't know what else to say about that, but, but, but I don't know if that's helpful or not, but
2: um, no, she's, she's passed away. Okay. I mean, she's been, she's been gone for a while, but she was in her seventies when she mm. would do this. So she okay. was, I don't know. But,
0: well, uh, may she rest in peace. And, uh, yes. and, uh, I, I think that, um, you know, I, I don't know what her understanding of the situation was either. Um that that obviously is a mitigating factor as well. So um God is very merciful. Well, she, went to church.
2: Well, yeah, she went to church a lot. I mean she always had she always prayed the rosary. I mean she was really, really good. But I think I always think God knows your heart, you know.
0: Yeah, well that is that's the thing. Like God God knows our understanding for sure and um like I was talking about the other day on the show, we can't we can't take it for granted anymore that people do know the basic precepts of the church and of the Catholic faith, and a lot of people don't even understand uh, the difference between mortal sin and venial sin. They don't even understand that there is such a thing as mortal sin, uh, which is hard to imagine, but but it is it is true. And so God knows our, our culpability, whether we ought to have known, um, whether it's a, of our own negligence, our own fault, or whether or whether we we clearly just did not know and did not have the opportunity to know. It sounds strange to say that in the age of Google and the fact that you can search for anything. Chat GPT is out there as well. You should be able to find the answer to any question that, that you have. But more and more I'm starting to realize that a lot of people don't even think to ask the question when it comes to all the stuff, which is sad to say. But thank, thanks so much for listening, Fern. Appreciate you and, and have a, a wonderful, wonderful weekend. Well, I do. I do want to get to this uh, this little piece because a lot of you guys are feeling a little bit nervous about the future especially with what's happening uh, in the political realm and spy balloons and all that sort of stuff. I um, came across a piece by uh, Michael McFall. and Michael McFaul teaches at Stanford University he's a professor of political science there he was also the US ambassador to Russia uh, from 2012 to 2014. And uh, if you follow him on Twitter, he, t- Michael McFall he, he does cover in great detail the conflict that's going on between Russia and Ukraine. He's, he's certainly uh, got some inside baseball on that one, being the former ambassador to Russia. He wrote a little piece about why Americans should feel more confident in this geopolitical situation in which we find ourselves. And he talked about—he wrote this a, a couple days ago on his uh, Substack, and you can find it there. They're, they're kind of newsletters that are put out uh, on this platform called Substack. And he was talking about the, uh, the intelligence-gathering balloon, of course, that was uh, shot down. It was spotted by residents over Montana. And there have been many questions about this, not a whole lot of answers so far. What went wrong, he says, that the balloon could be spotted— by Montana residents, or was it on purpose? And if so, why? What should the protocol be in the United States for such operations? And why was the response this time different than in the past? And why weren't we told about earlier balloon incursions? And apparently this is this is not a unique situation. It's happened before. Why wasn't it shot down earlier? Should we scan the sky for balloons, shoot them down above our territorial waters before they reach our land? And uh, Michael McFall actually has family living in Montana, and he was grateful that uh, President Biden did not order for it to be shot down above Montana. Uh, why isn't the Chinese Ministry of Defense answering our phone calls? Well, he says, well, really, there's, there's a bigger question that needs to be answered than all of these questions, as important as they may be. He says, why do we as Americans collectively sound so scared, so nervous, so unconfident in reacting to this event. Some are calling it an act of war. Some are comparing this to the 1957 Cold War incident with uh, sort of as a Sputnik moment as it were. Um, and some people are angry at the government uh, for showing supposed weakness and he said, well, he does think that the, the dealing with, with the, the threat of, of what's happening in China is really the central American foreign policy challenge in this century. And he thinks that in 2017, President Trump's national security strategy got it right when they when they diagnosed the challenge from China, calling it, along with Russia, revisionist powers that want to shape a world that's antithetical to US values and interests. And President Biden's security strategy basically echoed the same as, as what the Trump administration put out on that. Uh, they called China, quote, the only competitor with both the intent to reshape the international order and increasingly the economic, diplomatic, military, and technological power to do it. They actually have the capacity to pull it off. And so th- this idea that that containing and managing the threat uh, with respect to China is something that the Trump and Biden administrations have have been really, really concerned about over the last few years. But Michael McFaul says there's one missing ingredient here that, that hasn't really been talked about too much, and it's confidence. It's confidence. He says the United States is up to the task. And just as the U.S. did during the Cold War, he says we have the capabilities, we've got the allies, we've got the right ideas to win This new competition, but we don't act like it. We're we're scared. We sound uncertain, and it's time to change our mindset. He says, quote, The United States is still the most powerful country in the world. Yes, China is closing the gap in certain metrics, but in the aggregate, it still lags behind. President Xi wants you to believe that that's not the case. He says the East is rising, the West is declining, but it's incorrect. Think about the U.S. and China as racing in a two-mile run. The U.S. is ahead and is widening the gap. Now, China is between the U.S. and the rest of the world, and it's accelerating, it's closing in, but whether China eventually catches up, it's not a given. Regarding military power, the U.S. is still firmly ahead. Uh, in 2021, the U.S. Spent, spent $801 billion, or 3.5% of GDP, on its military. China only allocated $293 billion, or 1.7% of their GDP. The U.S. is still way ahead with five. 550 nuclear warheads. China only has 350. It's it's a little bit more complex than than, than people think. So they they might be starting to close the gap in some areas, but the United States is still way, way ahead in others. They still have by far the most powerful military in the world and a tremendous capacity to mobilize even greater resources than they have when compelled to do so. China's mostly alone also on the international front, but the U.S. has the best and the most allies in the world, in Europe, and Asia, NATO. Still strong, still growing, and there's lots of reasons for confidence. And so I think I think mindset is, is really a, a big part of this. And, and I, I'd encourage you to read the whole piece from uh, from McFall on his on his Substack. And most people in the world, 78% of people, they did a Pew Research survey on this. 78% of people from 38 countries around the world would rather live in a representative democracy than an autocratic country. There's no question about it. There's no question about it. There's still a lot of advantages. So be confident. Go into the weekend with confidence. Go into the future with confidence. The Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio. Thanks for joining me this week. If you missed an episode, check the podcast. Patrick Alog sitting in for Jim Schaefer today producing. Thomas and Guesser took your phone calls. God bless. Take it away, Michaela. Thank
1: you for listening to my daddy.